Good evening. Uh, my name is Sergio Verdu. I am uh, the chair of the Public Lectures Committee of the University. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the Lewis uh, Clark Van Oxen Lecture. This is one of five uh, endowed lectures uh, that the university has. Uh, this particular endowed series was um, endowed in 1912 under the will of Lewis Clark Van Oxen of, of the class of 1879. And lectures in this series have included Edwin Hubble, Thomas Mann, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, John von Neumann, and Claude Shannon. So I'm honored today to introduce uh, tonight's speaker, Professor Steven Pinker of MIT, where he's a professor of psychology in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences. Not only Steve enjoys a towering scientific reputation in his field, but he's also a very prolific popularizer of science, having written several books on language and the brain, which have become legendary bestsellers, not only in English, but in more than 10 languages. Among them, The Language Instinct was published in uh, 1994. Uh, in 1997, How the Mind Works appeared, and uh, Words and Rules, which is the topic of today's lecture, appeared in 1999. And uh, Steve uh, has just finished a manuscript called The Blank Slate, which, uh, which will appear at the end of the year. Uh, Professor Pinker is a native of Montreal. He graduated from McGill in 1976, obtained his PhD at Harvard three years later, working on experimental psychology, and he's been on the faculties of Harvard, Stanford, and at MIT since 1982. Uh, among Professor Pinker's many scholarly uh, contributions, we can cite his work on uh, visual cognition, how the brain, the brain processes the information received by the eye, evolutionary psychology and cognitive neuroscience, and in particular his work on the genetic roots of human language ability, where he studies the linguistic behavior empirically and also postulates theories on the nature of language and its relation to mind and brain. Professor Pinker is one of the most popular lecturers at MIT, and uh, I have a feeling that's not just because of his uh, rock star looks, <laughs> but uh, we'll see. Let's welcome Professor Pinker. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much, and thanks to all of you for coming. I'm going to be speaking about human language this evening. And language comes so naturally to us that it's easy to forget what a remarkable gift it is. But think about what we're doing this evening. You're going to be sitting patiently in your chair uh, for an hour listening to a guy make noise as he exhales. Now, why would you do that? It's not because uh, the sounds are particularly mellifluous, but it's because I've packed information into the precise sequence of noises uh, that I'll be making. You have the ability to decode that sequence of noises and recover the ideas that I've packed into uh, that signal, allowing us to share ideas. Ideas. Uh, 
Now, over the next hour, I'm going to be talking about this particular ability itself, language, but with a slightly different sequence of hisses and hums and squeaks and pops, I could be causing you to think thoughts of any of a vast array of topics, anything from theories of the origin of the universe to the twists and turns of the plot of a soap opera. This is what I think of as the miracle of language, its vast expressive power. And even after uh, having studied language for almost 25 years, uh, this is a property of language that never ceases to fill me with wonder. And I think the fundamental question in the scholarly study of language is to account for that ability. What's the trick? What is the trick behind our ability to fill each other's heads with so many different kinds of ideas simply by making noises with our mouths? The thesis of... Uh, this talk is that there is not one trick but two. Uh, and both of them were identified more than 100 years ago by continental linguists. The first, is the, the first trick is the memorized word, what Ferdinand de Saussure called the arbitrary sign. Take, for example, the word duck. It doesn't look like a duck or walk like a duck or quack like a duck, but I can use it to get you to think the thought of a duck because all of us at some point in our lives have memorized an association between that sound and that uh, idea. For us to be able to uh, communicate via words, we must have uh, similar structures in uh, information structures in memory that coordinate this understanding. And in a simplified form, uh, an entry in the mental dictionary might look something as follows. You've got some um, symbol for the word itself, some kind of representation of its sound, and then some kind of representation of its meaning. <laughs> but of course, we don't just blurt out individual words. Um, Oh, I, before I actually before I elaborate on that point, I just want to mention that even though this is a very simple system, there are a number of advantages that it brings with it. Uh, for one, because human memory is so uh, capacious, there are a large number of concepts that we can, can, can convey using words. It's been estimated that a typical high school graduate knows in the order of 60,000 words, which works out to a rate of learning them of one every two waking hours starting at the age of one. Considering that every word is as arbitrary as a phone number or a date in history, this in itself is a uh, remarkable testament to the powers of human memory. Also, the brain seems to be equipped to process words rapidly. Given the sound of a word, it takes the brain uh, about a fifth of a second to recognize it as a word and look up its meaning. Given a concept that we intend to articulate, it takes about a quarter of a second for the brain to dredge up the articulatory program to pronounce the word. But there are also some disadvantages to words. One of them is that you're stuck with a finite number of predetermined concepts, a large number, but still a finite number, namely those for which your language already has vocabulary items. Also, words are slaves to memory. Uh, if you're the only one who has memorized a word, you may as well not know it at all because no one will know what you're talking about. Um, and this brings me to the second trick behind language, combinatorial grammar, what Wilhelm von Humboldt called the infinite use of finite media, the ability to combine words in sequences in such a way that the meaning of the combination can be computed from the meanings of the individual words and the way that they're arranged. For that to happen in a consistent way from 
between speaker and hearer, there has to be something else stored in the, uh, in the brain, namely rules or a recipe or an algorithm that dictate how words can be combined in meaningful ways. Again, to uh, oversimplify greatly, a couple of examples of rules in English might be a rule that says that an English sentence is composed of a noun phrase, the subject, followed by a verb phrase, the predicate. A verb phrase uh, is composed of a verb, followed by a noun phrase, the object, followed by a sentence, the complement. Again, though this is a very simple gadget, it brings with it uh, a, uh, a great amount of communicative power by virtue of the fact that these rules are couched in symbols which are cross-referenced ac uh, across the different rules. So the label for this rule, namely verb phrase, is a constituent of the rule for a sentence. That allows one phrase to be plugged inside another by virtue of their common labels, and because the words themselves are labeled with syntactic categories, they can be plugged into particular slots defined by the uh, rules of grammar. The, there are a number of advantages to combinatorial grammar compared to uh, mere words. One of them is that by combining symbols, you can express new ideas, ones that have not necessarily ever been expressed before. There's a cliche in journalism that when a dog bites a man, that isn't news, but when a man bites a dog, that is news. The beauty of grammar is that it allows us to convey news by recombining old concepts in new combinations. Also, because knowledge of grammar is couched in abstract symbols like noun and verb, they're not tied to any particular kind of content. The same rule that allows you to talk about a uh, dog biting a man also allows you to talk about a big bang creating a universe. Third is that because grammar is a combinatorial system, the number of combina combinations grows exponentially with the length of the sentence. If there are 10,000 nouns that you can choose from to begin a sentence, and then 4,000 verbs that you can choose to continue it, you already have 40 million different ways to, be, to begin a sentence, and you're only two words into it. And the possibilities explode from there. Uh, George Miller, here in the psychology department at uh, Princeton, uh, years ago estimated that a typical person can produce and understand something like 100 million trillion different grammatical and meaningful sentences, 20 words uh, in length or shorter. Uh, as the late Carl Sagan would have said, billions and billions of sentences. And there's also a sense in which um, the number of thoughts that we can convey using grammar is not just humongous, but in a technical sense is infinite, thanks to a trick called recursion. Remember that the rule for a sentence says that it may be composed of a verb phrase, uh, and the rule for a verb phrase says that it may contain a sentence. That means that you can plug a sentence inside a sentence and a sentence inside a sentence inside a sentence uh, ad infinitum. So there is no limit on the number of sentences that you're capable of producing and no longest sentence that in principle uh, you're confined to. Now, in fact, the claim that there is no longest sentence is not a uh, trivial or banal observation, but it actually contradicts a claim that's in the literature that there is a world's longest sentence. Now, who would make a claim like that? Well, who else? The Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, you could look it up. World's longest sentence. 1,300 words long. Comes from a novel by William Faulkner. Uh, 
I can see some of you have read the novels of William Faulkner. I won't reproduce all 1,300 words, but here's how it begins. They both bore it as though in deliberate, flagellant exaltation, and it uh, runs on from there. And I'm here to tell you that, in fact, this is not the world's longest sentence after all. And I've been tempted to submit the following record breaker to Guinness to achieve uh, immortality in its pages. Faulkner wrote, they both bored as though in deliberate flagellant exaltation. But alas, I realized that this would not be immortality, but only the proverbial 15 minutes of fame, because any one of you could submit, Guinness noted that Faulkner wrote, or Pinker mentioned that Guinness noted that Faulkner wrote, or who cares that Pinker mentioned that Guinness noted that Faulkner wrote, dot, dot, dot. Well, grammar is a uh, wonderful system allowing us to convey an infinite number of ideas using a finite number of words and rules, which leads to the question, are there any inherent disadvantages to grammar? Um, And in fact, there are. They're best appreciated by trying to imagine what a language would look like if it had nothing but grammar. That is, if it didn't have those uh, clumsy, arbitrary, sound-meaning combinations that we have to uh, learn by rote. Um, Now, in fact, these languages have already been imagined for us because uh, during the Enlightenment, it was an affront to their rationalist sensibilities that we should be saddled with the, the ugly task of memorizing tens of thousands of arbitrary pairings. And there were a number of designs, utopian designs, for perfect languages that would be completely predictable. The most famous is the analytical language of John Wilkins, who wrote, uh, we should, by learning the names of things, be instructed likewise in their natures. And some of you may know of John Wilkins' language from the wonderful essay by Jorge Luis Borges on it. Uh, Also, it was the subject of a book by Umberto Eco called In Search of the Perfect Language. But here's, here's roughly how it works. In Wilkins' language, Zeta meant dog, but you didn't have to memorize that fact. You could deduce it because he divided the universe into 40 ontological categories and assigned each one of them a vowel or a consonant. So Z stood for animal, then I stood for quadruped, T for rapacious terrestrial European canine, and then A pinpointed the species. Uh, Similarly, a deba was a portion of the first terrestrial element, a.k.a. flame, and a koba was a consanguineous relation of direct descendant, to wit, a father. Well... Needless to say, this uh, scheme did not catch on. (laughs) And here we are, 300 years later, still memorizing tens of thousands of arbitrary words. And it's easy to see uh, why it didn't catch on. A scheme like Wilkins requires complex mental computation for every word. Every time someone opens his mouth, you've got to play a game of 20 questions as you work your way through the vowels and consonants. Also, the combinatorial power is overkill for most concepts which we encounter and express over and over again, whereas there are some which we never have occasion to refer to. You seldom have to refer to a portion of a father or uh, a fire with four legs and so on. And so a system that gives you a word for each one of these concepts is really more combinatorial expressive power than we really need. It suggests that the design of real human languages uses both of these systems for the tasks that they are best at. That we have words for common entities, for for a dog, for a man, for a fire, and so on, 
for which the psychological mechanism is uh, memory. We have grammatical rules for novel combinations of concepts for men biting dogs and big bangs creating universes for which the uh, psychological mechanism is some kind of online uh, combinatorial computation. Now, a test of this idea would be to find some core of meaning where the word system and the rule system both express the same ideas, so you hold constant the, the content or meaning, but they're still psychologically and ultimately neurobiologically distinguishable. And the point of uh, this lecture and of the book by the same title is that we do have an example uh, of this partly redundant design of language, what you might dimly remember from English classes as the distinction between regular and irregular forms. Now, here's a bit of a refresher. Verbs in English and in many languages come in two flavors. You have uh, regular verbs, uh, like walk, walked, jog, jogged, and kiss, kissed, which form their past tense by adding the suffix that we spell ed. This is a predictable class for verb after verb after verb. Uh, every, they're formed monotonously in exactly the same predictable way by adding the suffix. It's also an open-ended class. There are thousands of existing regular verbs uh, in English, and new ones are being added to the language all the time. So, for example, when the verb to fax came into common parlance in the mid-1980s, you didn't have to run to the dictionary to look up the past tense form. Uh, everyone instinctively knew that it was faxed. Likewise, for other uh, neologisms, uh, such as to spam, to snarf, to mung, to mosh, and to dis, everyone knows that the past tense forms are spam, snarfed, mung, moshed, and dissed. Um, even kids do it. If you bring a four-year-old into the lab and say, here is a man who knows how to wug, he did the same thing yesterday, he, children, will fill in the blank by saying wugged, even though they couldn't possibly have memorized that form beforehand because the experimenter made it up right there and then, but they must have created it on the fly in their own minds. There's a sense in which all children are subjects in this experiment because children produce forms that they couldn't have heard from their parents, such as bringed and cummed and holded and goad and taked uh, and so on, which also must be spontaneous creations. Uh, and this brings me to the second flavor of verb in English, the irregular verbs. Uh, verbs like uh, bring brought, hit hit, uh, go went, sing sang, sleep slept, make made, ring rang, and fly flew. Now, irregular verbs contrast with the regulars in just about every way. Whereas the regulars are uh, monotonously predictable, the irregulars are quirky and idiosyncratic. The past of sink is sank, for example, but the past of cling is not clang, but clung. The past of think is neither thank nor thunk, but is thought. And the past of blink is neither blank nor blunk nor blot, but is regular, blinked. Also, it's a closed class. There are only about 165 irregulars in contemporary English, and there haven't been any uh, recent new ones in the last few decades. Well, this leads to a simple theory. Irregular forms are words that we memorize the same way we memorize dog and duck and man and so on. You learn bring, you learn brought, uh, they uh, have different sounds, the meaning overlaps, uh, except there's a little tag that says that brought is a past tense form, and a link that tells you what it's the past tense of. 
Regular forms, on the other hand, uh, don't have to be learned as two separate words. You can get away with simply learning the verb stem uh, walk. Whenever you need a past tense form, you generate it on the fly, and then you can even throw it away because the next time you need one, you can just create it all over again. Um, also, the interaction between the two systems is relatively straightforward. If a word can provide its own past tense for memory, the rule is blocked. That's why we grown-ups don't say things like bringed and cummed and taked, because we have brought and came and took in memory, which preempt the rule. Elsewhere, or by default, the rule applies, and that's why both children and adults can come up with new forms, such as uh, wugged and spammed and uh, uh, dissed and moshed. Well, uh, it's a nice story, and I could end the uh, talk right here if it weren't for a complication, something that challenges this nice, neat dichotomy. And that is that the irregular verbs are shot through with patterns. They come in families like keep, kept, sleep, slept, feel, felt, dream, dreamt, where, war, bear, bore, tear, tore, square, swore, string, strung, swing, swung, sting, stung, fling, flung. Uh, this redundancy is not what you would expect if every verb and its irregular form was stored in a separate pigeonhole or slot in memory. You have no explanation for why there's so much redundancy in the system. Also, occasionally, the irregular patterns are generalized uh, and not simply memorized. Kids, every once in a while, about one-tenth about, uh, one of one percent of the opportunities, will say things like bring brang or bite boat or wipe wope. They, uh, these innovations rarely, but sometimes, will be, uh, will get a toehold in the language. So, uh, quit and caught, for example, are only a couple of hundred years old. Jane Austen used quitted in her novels, and George Washington used catched in his correspondence. And the most recent irregular, snuck, sneaked into the language only about a hundred years ago, uh, and still sounds kind of um, cutesy or slangish to people over the age of 50, though it sounds unexceptionable to people under the age of 50. This is especially obvious when you compare dialects of English. In many uh, non-standard forms of British and American English, you hear forms like drag drug, uh, climb clum, or one that President Clinton used a few years ago. When the Republicans saw my budget, they swole up and died. Um, <laughs> And as a, an experimental psychologist, I'm not supposed to accept anything as a fact until it's been demonstrated in the lab on either rats or sophomores. Um, <laughs> though no one has tested irregular verbs on rats, if you bring a bunch of sophomores into the lab and you say, what is the past tense of to spling, more than half will suggest splang or splung. Now, this process was brought to a, a high art by the uh, baseball pitcher, radio announcer, and linguist Dizzy Dean, who once gave the following play-by-play -play to a baseball game. The pitcher wound up and flanged the ball at the batter. The batter swang and missed. The pitcher flanged the ball again, and this time the batter connected. He hit a high fly right to the center fielder. The center fielder was all set to catch the ball, but at the last minute his eyes were blown by the sun and he dropped it. <laughs> So the question is, how do we explain the dizzy dean that's present in all of us? And uh, as you can imagine, there have been two alternatives to the words and rules theory, each of which tries to take one of these two components and stretch it to account for the phenomena ordinarily attributed to the other. The first alternative is a theory of generative phonology from my colleagues Noam Chomsky and Morris Holly at MIT, according to which rules rule. There's not only a rule 
that adds ED for the regular forms, but there's a family of rules that fiddles with vowels and consonants to derive irregular past tense forms. For example, change in the vowel I to A, a minor rule. The problem for this theory um, is how you get it to apply to the right set of verbs, how you get it to apply to string, sting, and fling, but not, say, to fib giving you fub or wish giving you wush. Um, there are two ways in which you could try to do, that, do it, and neither of them are really satisfactory. One of them is you can stipulate the verbs in a list. That is, the change it to a rule applies to only these 14 verbs. The problem is you have no explanation for why the verbs in the list are so similar to one another, why string and sting and fling and not fib and wish and fish and so on. Alternatively, you could try to distill out the common pattern that all of the verbs in that class have and append it as a condition to the rule. Say that the it to a rule applies if and only if a word conforms to the pattern consonant, consonant, I, and then the engma uh, or ung vowel, the velar nasal consonant in English. The problem here is that none of these conditions works. Um, they all make errors of omission and commission. So this particular one, which is the, the best of the lot, falsely includes bring that fits the pattern, but whose past tense is not uh, brang but uh, not brung but brought, and spring whose past tense is not sprung but sprang. It also excludes words like stick, uh, whose past tense is stuck, but it misses the pattern because it ends in a consonant that's velar but not nasal, and spin, which also fails to match the pattern because it ends in a consonant that's nasal but not velar. The problem is that families of irregular forms are what Ludwig Wittgenstein called family resemblance categories. They have a set of patterns that statistically tend to run through the class, but no set of necessary and sufficient conditions that can delineate the class precisely by any fixed rule. Well, this leads to something completely different the theory of artificial neural networks or connectionism, according to which there are no rules. There's just memory, but it's a beefed-up kind of memory that can support analogies rather than pure rote. The basic trick is that instead of linking a word to a word in memory, you link the sounds of the word to the sounds of a word. So in, their, in the pattern associator model of David Rummelhart and Jay McClelland, there is a bank of vaguely neuron-like units, each one of which stands for a bit of sound in the verb. Uh, so this might stand for an I between two consonants. That might stand for a stop consonant at the end of a word. There's a similar bank of units that stand for the past tense form. Every input is connected to every output. The model is trained by giving it verbs and their correct past tense forms training it with walk-walked, sing-sang, uh, and so on. It soaks up correlations between a particular sound in the uh, verb and a particular sound in its past tense form if it's been stamped in often enough. It can then generalize to new similar words because similar words literally overlap in their representational real estate. So anything that's been associated with a sound for one word automatically generalizes to the same sound in another word. The problem here is generalizing properly the way that humans do. The beauty of a pattern associator network is that it can generalize to new words that are similar to old words. And I think that does work for irregular patterns where people do the same thing. 
If you ask a person what is the past tense of cling, they'll say clung. Likewise, the model, no surprise, because those have both appeared in the, in, uh, the experience. But they can also generalize both people and a trained neural network from spling to splung simply because of the overlap with what it's already been trained on. It also works for regular verbs if they're similar to existing regular verbs. Both people and a neural network model given to plip will both correctly generalize to plipped because plip is so similar to clip, slip, trip, snip, flip, uh, and so on. The problem arises for new words that are not similar to old words, such as to plump, uh, which doesn't rhyme with anything in English and, in fact, uh, vaguely violates the rules for a... Um, uh, pronounceable English uh, syllable. <laughs> um, here, you see people and uh, the neural network models diverge. You ask people, what's the past tense of plomf? They'll say plomfed. The best the model could come up with was bro. <laughs> Likewise, trilb, trilbed, the model could only cough up trililt. Uh, smeaged is what people say for smeage. Leaf log is what the model came up with. Uh, frilled people, frizzled the model. What's going on? I think this um, underscores a, a subtle but an important limitation of many neural network models. Namely, they lack the simple computational gadget of a variable, that is a symbol like x in algebra or verb in grammar, that can stand for any of a member of a class regardless of its actual content. In the case of the past tense, we know that a verb is a verb and you just stick an ed onto it no matter what it sounds like. But if you don't have the variable verb, you are left with the concrete sounds that you've been trained on. And then if the model is confronted with a verb that contains new sounds, it has nothing to fall back on. And the best it can do is cough up a hairball of the closest bits and pieces it can find in its training set. So this leads to, a, uh, I think, a, a modification of the original words and rules theory that I presented at the outset, that irregulars are words stored in memory. The new twist is that human memory is not a list of pigeonholes, but it is partly associative, uh, and neural network models might be a reasonable model of how human memory works, namely that we, when we memorize a pair of uh, words, we link the sounds to the sounds in memory, not just the word to the word. That explains why ge people generalize irregular patterns to similar words, as in the Dizzy Dean effect. But I'm going to show you why we still need a rule for the regulars to explain how people can generalize the regular pattern to any word, whether it's similar or dissimilar to something in memory, whether it's familiar uh, or unfamiliar. The overall prediction is that people can apply the regular ED pattern whenever memory fails for any reason that memory fails. And I'm going to show you how this simple idea explains a range of phenomena in language that would seem to have little in common where regular and irregular forms came from in the history of the language, the logic behind apparent grammatical quirks, the use and misuse of rules by children, where language resides in the brain, and how and why languages differ. Let me start with where regular forms come from. And the first observation simply pertains to the statistical structure of the English language. Now here's a top ten list top ten verbs in English in order of how frequently they occur in a million-word corpus of uh, English text. They are be, have, do, say, make, go, take, come, see, and get. Uh, 
Now, interesting fact, all ten of them are irregular. Be was, have had, do, did, make, made, uh, say, said, go, went, take, took, come, came, seesaw, get, got. Now, there can't be a bottom ten list for the uh, least frequent words uh, in a uh, million-word corpus because there's an 877-way tie for last place, uh, last place being one in a million, which, of course, is the lowest frequency that you can estimate from a million-word corpus. I'll simply present the top ten in alphabetical order. Abate, abbreviate, abhor, ablate, abridge, abrogate, acclimatize, acculturate, admix, adulterate. Uh, notice that all ten are regular. Abate, abated, abbreviate, abri- abbreviated, and so on. There's a massive correlation in English and most other languages between frequency and irregularity. It's the words that you use every day that are most likely to be irregular. Why should that be? Well, irregulars depend on memory. That's because they're idiosyncratic and uh, there's no rule behind them. They have to be memorized one by one. Memory depends on frequency. The more often you hear something, the better you remember it. If a word were ever to decline in popularity, it may not be memorized uniformly by a generation of children. If so, speakers will default to the regular, converting the verb from irregular to regular for their generation and all subsequent generations. And in fact, there's evidence that that, in fact, has happened in the history of English. In uh, Old and Middle English, there were more than twice as many irregular verbs as we find today. So, for example, if Chaucer were here, he would tell you that the past tense of to cleave is clove. Likewise, abide, abode, chide, chid, crow, crew, gripe, grope, writhe, row, and many others. The linguist Joan Bybee has shown that the words that were common uh, in Chaucer's time have stayed irregular. The words that were less common have slipped over to the regular side, just as you'd expect from the memory theory. And in fact, this isn't just an ancient history, but you can feel it continuing to happen today, where the remaining infrequent irregulars uh, sound strange, and you can feel them slipping out of the language uh, beneath our ears. So, for example, complete the following uh, conjugation. I stride, I strode, I have stridden? Well, maybe, kind of, but it sounds a little bit stilted. Uh, Likewise, for other low-frequency irregulars like smite, smote, slay, slew, bid, bade, and forsake, forsook, uh, you can find them in the dictionary, and if you're literate, you probably remember them from print, but um, it's not the kind of natural part of your language that you would use uh, every day. In contrast, if you look up regular verbs with the same frequency profile, they don't have that stilted or tainted feel to them. If I ask you to conjugate this sequence, I abrogate, I abrogated, I have abrogated, there's no problem, even though the frequency of abrogated is about the same as the frequency of smote. Um, Now, you might object, uh, well, sure, smote sounds a little weird, but it's not as if I walk around using the verb to smite uh, in every sentence to begin with. But you can show that this is, um, in fact, a peculiarity of the past tense form itself, that in the irregulars, a verb can be familiar, even though its past tense can be unfamiliar. And a good way to demonstrate that is to look at idioms and cliches, where you can hear a verb uh, trapped in one tense, then you force that familiar word into the past tense, and you see how natural or unnatural it is. So take the verb to forego. It's not terribly common, but it enjoys a certain liveliness in the uh, fixed 
sarcastic expression to forego the pleasure of, as in, uh, you'll excuse me if I forego the pleasure of watching the video of your wife giving birth. (laughs) But now, put it into the past tense, and you get, last night I forewent the pleasure of watching Herb's vacation slides, uh, which is rather peculiar. Likewise, I don't know how she bears that guy, no problem. I don't know how she bore that guy, it's almost unintelligible. Uh, I dig the doors, man. You can certainly say that. But in the 60s, your mother and I dug the doors, son. Uh, Doesn't sound as natural. And here's one that I I clipped out of the comic pages, which illustrates the theory perfectly. One teenager says to the other, this week totally bit. Bit? Okay, this week bited. Mm, That can't be right either. This week is totally bitten? Almost, but not quite. Back on Monday, I didn't know this week was going to bite so bad. And the other one says, I hate conjugating irregular vulgarities. <laughs> However, there is no problem conjugating regular vulgarities. And so if in the first panel, one teenager said, this week totally sucked, which is a synonym for bit, uh, there'd be no basis for the strip. And indeed, uh, we've found in questionnaires that an infrequent regular sounds as good or as bad as the verb itself. Uh, I don't know how she copes with him. I don't know how she coped with him, even though it has the same frequency distribution as bear and bore. The coped is just fine. Likewise, she doesn't suffer fools gladly, a, uh, a um, fixed expression. Force it into the past tense. None of them ever suffered fools gladly. Again, uh, no problem. Explanation is straightforward. If an irregular consists of two separate entries in memory, one of them can be strong while the other one is uh, weak and sketchy and fuzzy, so they can part company, one of them sounding familiar, the other sounding uh, stilted. For a regular, you can get by with simply storing the verb itself. The past tense is generated on the fly, and so the past tense form has to inherit whatever whatever sense of familiarity or unfamiliarity inheres in the memory entry for the verb itself, and they can't part company. Now, uh, where do irregulars come from, then? It's certainly not the case that the language started out uh, completely irregular, and they've been kind of eroding ever since. Um, New irregulars can also be formed, and indeed, If, according to the theory, um, irregular forms depend on memory, and so they're vulnerable in any circumstance in which memory is fragile, such as uh, low number of exposures, by symmetrical logic, if regulars depend on rules, they should be vulnerable in any circumstance in which the rule system is fragile. And that can happen when the rules get too complicated for a generation of children to figure out. And in a nutshell, irregular forms are the fossils of dead rules, rules that died because they became too complicated or obscure for a generation of kids to figure out. And indeed, if you go back far enough, many of the irregular vowel change patterns uh, go back to what uh, were lawful rules in the ancestral language, Proto-Indo-European, spoken more than 5,500 years ago. So in Proto-Indo-European, the past tense of senk could be deduced to be sank. That's the ancestor of our sink-sank. Likewise, there gave rise to vor, the Uh, ancestor of our bear boar. Let me use a more recent example to show how a rule can die, leaving a bunch of irregulars uh, as its fossils. Uh, In the Middle English period, 
Um, there already was a, uh, the ancestor of our past tense rule, which added an ed. Um, keep in mind that in those days, people were more into phonetic spelling, and words reflected their pronunciation to a much greater degree than they do today. So K-E-E-P would have been pronounced something like kep with a long S, -S sound. Uh, there was a second rule in the language, a vowel shortening rule, <clears throat> that would compress a vowel when extra stuff was hung on to the end of the syllable. And the rationale for that rule is that a syllable is more or less a unit of timing in speech, and if you clutter it up with too much junk at the end, there's a tendency to squish the vowel to keep the syllable to within one tick of the speech metronome. And so uh, what kept was shortened to kept, that applied throughout the language to what is now sleep, slept, creep, crept, and so on. And even outside the verb system, it was just a rule of pronunciation. And that's why we have sheep, shepherd, Christ, Christmas, deep depth, five-fifth, and so on. Then a, a funny thing happened. In the 15th century, in a process known as the Great Vowel Shift, uh, the pronunciation of long vowels got uh, scrambled. What used to be pronounced A was then pronounced E. What used to be pronounced E was now pronounced I, and so on. One of the consequences of the great vowel shift is that forms that used to be systematically related, kep and kept, long and short versions of the same vowel, were now keep and kept, two qualitatively different vowels. As a result, children learning English could no longer deduce some rule that related keep to kept. They basically threw up their hands and memorized them as separate forms. The shortening rule died, and any new form that entered the English language after the vowel shift no longer underwent shortening. Peep, which appeared in 1460, is obviously peeped, not pepped. Likewise, seep from 1790 is uh, seeped. And we ended up with our hybrid system of forms like seep seeped coexisting with fossils like keep kept. Well, let me switch now to an, uh, another quirk of the English language, long noted by uh, language mavens, verbivores, sesquipedalians, and other language lovers. Um, you can read about it in William Sapphire's columns and so on, which is why sometimes irregular forms show up mysteriously as regulars. Here's an example. All my daughter's friends are lowlifes. Now, you wouldn't say all my daughter's friends are low lives, even though the ordinary irregular plural of life is lives. You might say, I'm sick of dealing with all the Mickey Mouses in this organization. Probably not the Mickey Mice. <laughs> uh, ever since the, the Sony Walkman was introduced, people have been unsure as how to refer to more than one of them. But many people uh, believe that the plural should be Walkmans, not Walkmen. In fact, the owner of this uh, electronic shop was so confident about the regular plural that he actually had it bent into the glass tubing of a neon sign. Uh, and here's another example, uh, also from the comic strips. We've got two little leaguers uh, sitting on the bench with a lot of time on their hands to ponder the mysteries of baseball. One of them says, why is home plate called that when it doesn't even resemble a plate? And why do they call it a strike when you've actually missed the ball and haven't hit anything at all? Plus, why does a baseball manager wear a uniform when he never plays? And why do they say a batter flied out instead of flew out? Indeed, baseball fans know that no mere mortal has ever flown out to center field. 
Okay, well, what this immediately shows, this phenomenon, is that sound can't be the only input to the inflection process. Because the same sound can go in one end of the box, such as fly, and come out the other end of the box, either as flied or as flew, depending on some other input. And the question is, what is that extra input? The most common theory is that it's got to be meaning. Fly in baseball doesn't mean the same thing as what birds do, and perhaps if you added a bunch of units for meaning to a pattern associator, whenever you gave a word a new meaning, its semantic units would differ. That would dilute the associations to the word and would uh, weaken the links to the irregular form. Uh, so if you stretch the meaning, according to this theory, you get weaker associations. But it's easy to, to show that this theory isn't right, because 99% of the time when you change the meaning of a word, in fact, it does nothing to the irregular past tense form. For example, in, whenever you use a word metaphorically, such as a chess man, uh, that radical change in meaning doesn't cause people to flip from the irregular. So the plural of chess man is chess men, not chess mans, as in walkmans. So it can't simply be meaning. Likewise, for other metaphors, straw men, snowmen, saw teeth, God's children, radical changes in meaning, no change in form. Uh, in the English verb system, you've got even more radical meaning changes without a change in, in uh, past tense form. There's very little in common between catching a cold and catching a ball. Nonetheless, the past tense is caught a cold, not catched a cold. Similarly, cut a deal, took a leak, bought the farm, hit the fan, blew him off, came off well, put out wet nuts, got a life, had a cow. Uh, stretch the meaning all you want. That isn't the key to these uh, funny examples. I think the, the correct theory is that the extra input is grammatical structure. And um, in explaining this, I'm going to appeal to a theory that uh, was, a, I think, originally proposed by uh, Edwin Williams here in the, in the uh, program in linguistics. And it hinges on the key property of grammar. That is, that it's a scheme for computing the properties of a new entity from the properties of the old entities and the way that they're arranged. And Professor Williams uh, worked that out for how bits of words are assembled into more complex words. And I'm going to present the theory in a simplified form. Take the word overeat. You start out with the simple word eat with its part of speech category verb, its meaning, and its uh, idiosyncratic irregular past tense form eight. You concatenate it with the prefix over to get overeat. And now the question is, uh, how do you know how to use that word in a sentence? Or in notation, what do you put up here, the properties that stands for this, uh, this new combination? The theory is that there's a special position in the word known as the head, which is the rightmost element, and that all the information that's stored in memory with the head gets passed up to apply to the word as a whole. So what kind of a word is overeat? Well, it's a verb because eat is a verb, and the verb information stored with eat gets passed up through this data pipeline and applies to the whole word. What's the meaning of overeat? Well, it's a kind of eating, eating too much. And that's because the meaning of eat stored in memory also gets passed up. What's the past tense of overeat? Overate, not overeated, because the past tense of eat is eight, and that information get, percolates up through this data pipeline. Let me quickly walk you through another example. Start out with the English word man, with its uh, noun category, its meaning, and its irregular plural. Concatenate it with uh, work to form workman. How do you know how to use workman? Easy. 
look at the head, the rightmost element, whatever is stored in memory with it, copy it upstairs. So uh, a uh, man is a noun, therefore a workman is a noun. That information gets copied up. A work, what's the meaning of workman? A kind of man, a man who works, because the semantic information is copied up. What's the plural of workman? Workmen, because the plural of man is men, and that information gets copied up. Okay, now here's the, uh, the punchline. There are a few words that have to opt out of this scheme. They can't be allowed to get their properties from their, excuse me, their uh, rightmost element. Uh, the usual data pathway has to be blocked in order to use the word the way the speaker wants to use it. As a result, any irregular form is trapped in memory and has no way of passing up to apply to the word as a whole. Uh, to put it in the past tense, you see memory be having been sealed off, you default to the regular form and you simply tack an ED onto the end of it. Uh, let me show you how that works, say, for lowlifes. The crucial thing that makes lowlife peculiar in English is that a lowlife is not a kind of life in the way that a workman is a kind of man. A lowlife, rather, is a kind of person, a person who has a lowlife rather than being a lowlife. That means that when you form uh, low life by joining low to life, the ordinary scheme has to be blocked in order to prevent low life from being a kind of life. That means that the idiosyncratic plural lives is trapped in memory, has no way of applying to the new word, and so you default to the regular and you get low lives. Now, this sounds like an awfully fancy theory to explain one little quirk of English, but in fact, it applies to a vast range of uh, otherwise puzzling examples. What's the plural of still life? Still lifes. Why? Because a still life is also not a kind of life, but a painting of still life. Uh, Sabertooth, sabertooths, because a sabertooth is not a kind of tooth, but a kind of cat. Uh, flatfoot, a slang term for a policeman, also not a kind of foot but a kind of person, plural flatfoots. And this gives us the explanation for walkman, also not a kind of uh, man in the same way that a workman is a kind of man. In fact, the actual derivation is a little bit obscure because it's a, an example of the product names in, in Japan loosely based on kind of semi-random English because of the cachet of all things American. Um, in fact, the Sony Corporation has an answer to the frequently asked question, what is the plural of walkman? And the correct answer is Sony Walkman brand personal stereos, uh, because they're afraid that if their name turns into a noun, they will lose their trademark protection. Well, names turning into nouns also explains the Mickey Mouses. Start off with the English word for mus musculus, namely mouse. Walt Disney converted that noun into a name by concatenating it with the name Mickey. Uh, then in ordinary slang, that name got converted back into a noun to refer to a simpleton. In order for that to, the word to have that kind of decomposition, there has to be a uh, barrier preventing the noun mouse from just giving you yet another noun, allowing it to be converted into something else, namely a name. And a second barrier that allows the name to be converted back into a noun, because ordinarily nouns beget nouns and names beget uh, names, not in this case, with mice therefore having no way to be copied upstairs, you default to the regular and get Mickey Mouses. Again, this is not a uh, convoluted theory accounting for one little quirk, but it works whenever you pluralize names. 
In Toronto, there's a hockey team where each uh, player is named after Canada's national symbol, the Maple Leaf, but when six of them skate onto the ice, they are the Toronto Maple Leafs, not the Maple Leafs. Again, they've they're so confident in this plural that they actually sewed it onto their jerseys. Uh, likewise, uh, Renault used to make a car called the Elf, but a lot of them was not a horde of elves, but a but of elves. You might say Michael Keaton starred in the first two Batmans, not the first two Batmen. And you all know the famous chef, Julia Child. Well, you might say, we're having Julia Child and her husband over for dinner. You know, the Childs are really great cooks. You wouldn't say, you know, the children are really great cooks. <laughs> Finally, uh, we get to flying out. Uh, and here, again, the theory was beautifully explained by, in the uh, comic pages in the late lamented strip Calvin and Hobbes, where one day Calvin says to Hobbes, I like to verb words. What? I take nouns and adjectives and use them as verbs. Remember when access was a thing? Now it's something you do. It got verbed. Verbing weirds language. Maybe we can eventually make language a complete impediment to understanding. <laughs> <clears throat> but in fact, verbing doesn't weird language all that much, but we do it all the time, including in this funny case of flying out. Start out with the ordinary English word, verb uh, fly to slip the surly bonds of earth. In baseball, that got converted into a noun, a fly, meaning a ball hit on a conspicuously parabolic trajectory, as in a pop fly or an infield fly or a fly ball. That verb, that, sorry, that noun got converted back into a verb to fly out, to make an out by hitting a fly. Uh, because verbs ordinarily beget verbs, according to Williams' theory, you have to turn off that mechanism. Likewise, because nouns ordinarily would just give you other nouns, that has to be turned off a second time. Flu and flown are uh, trapped in memory. To put it in the past tense, you have to revert to the default and get flied. Uh, again, that works quite generally. So in hockey, for example, when one player nearly decapitates another with his hockey stick and is sent to the penalty box for two minutes for high-sticking, we say that he high-sticked the goalie, not high-stuck the goalie, because uh, the noun stick got verbed to high-stick. Likewise, you might say Ventura grandstanded to the audience, not grandstood, played to the grandstand, a verb based on a noun or Powell ringed the city with artillery, not rang or rung, because this version of the verb to ring means form a ring around. Again, a noun got verbed. Let me switch to childhood now and start off with a phenomenon that I alluded to at the outset, uh, as in this cartoon where the boy says, Mommy, Dolly hitted me. Dolly hit me. You too? Boy, she's in trouble. Uh, this is the phenomenon of children overextending the regular pattern to irregular verbs, as in we holded the baby rabbits, or uh, the alligator goat kerplunk, or Horton heard a who. Uh, simple explanation. Uh, children's memory retrieval is less reliable than adults, not necessarily because kids have a bad memory, but because they haven't lived as long. That's what being a child means. You haven't lived as long. Uh, and... Uh, among the experiences that we accumulate as we age is hearing the past tenses of irregular verbs. If you're only three years old, you haven't heard forms like held and took and wound uh, as often as you or I have. Some percentage of the time, the child might try to retrieve the past tense form of, say, uh, take or bring. Took or brought may not pop into mind quickly enough. If the child is old enough to have acquired the English uh, rule, 
the child can fill in the vacuum by adding ED, resulting in an error like bringed or taked to satisfy the demands of the syntax. <clears throat> What's the evidence? Well, evidence that weak memory is a factor comes from the, the uh, observation that the less often a parent uses a particular verb in the presence of a child, as we've assessed uh, from transcripts of conversation between parent and children, the more often the child will make an error on it. So the with kids, as with adults, frequency matters. The less you hear it, the more often you'll make an error on it. What's the evidence that uh, having acquired the English rule is a critical factor? Well, there's an aspect of this error pattern that's long been noted in the child psychology textbooks, sometimes called U-shaped development, where kids seem to get worse before they get better. Um, the errors like bringed and taked and here don't appear right away. Here's an example of one little boy that, that, uh, whose speech we studied. Uh, the graph goes from the age of two to the age of five. What's plotted here is percentage of irregular past tense forms that are correct. Each dot represents a month. And for eight consecutive months, this little boy never produced an error like heared or goed or taked, came out with his first one just before the age of three, continued to make them at a steady but low rate for the next three years. So what happened over here? Why does a child wake up one morning and suddenly start to say uh, heard and cummed? The hypothesis is that that's when he figured out the past tense system of English. Uh, and the evidence is, look what happens to regular verbs over the same interval. Now, if you plot on the same axis, how often this boy said, uh, yesterday we walked, as opposed to yesterday we walk, he goes from leaving out the ending more often than supplying it to supplying it more often than leaving it out, and the transition occurs at exactly the point at which he makes the first error with the irregulars. What this suggests is that we've, the graph kind of catches the child in the act of learning a bit of English, namely the regular past tense rule, which is manifest both in better performance where the rule should apply and slightly worse performance where the rule shouldn't apply. Let me switch now to a rather direct test of the idea that the brain has two systems for handling language uh, by looking at cases where the uh, word system or the rule system is directly compromised by neurological damage to the brain. The prediction is that damage to the neural system for memory for words should hurt the irregulars more, damage to the system for grammatical computation should hurt the regulars more. And uh, we've looked at a, a number of um, patients who've suffered damage to the brain for various reasons. And I'll start off telling you about a case study of one gentleman who suffered damage to the posterior part of the parasylvian region of the left hemisphere of the brain. That's approximately here. Uh, that often results in a symptom called anomia, uh, difficulty retrieving words. Often patients with anomia can nonetheless be fluent uh, at producing grammatical sentences, they just have trouble coughing up the words as they need them. And they often talk about the thing and the guy and the man and the stuff, have great difficulty retrieving uh, low-frequency words. Um, indeed, uh, irregulars for this patient were harder than regulars, as you would predict if irregulars depend on the memory system. There were a large number of regularization errors, like cummed and swimmed and grinded, because the irregulars were less uh, available, but the rule system was cranking away. And they were pretty good for a neurological patient at doing the WUG test, today I WUG, yesterday I WUGged, because that does not depend on 
rote memory, but rather on the rule system. Uh, a contrasting case comes from patients who have more anterior damage, damage to frontal lobe systems that are involved in planning and combination. They often have a symptom called agrammatism, which results in a difficulty in stringing words and bits of words into fluent sequences, and the impairment in word retrieval in memory is often less severe. And that's the kind of patient that we tested. Here we find the opposite asymmetries. <clears throat> the irregulars are easier than the, the regulars because the irregulars depend on memory, which is less impaired in these patients. Few or no regularization errors, like a SWIMD, because they depend on this uh, online system. And they cannot do the WUG test. Today I WUG, yesterday I WUGged. We get a similar pattern of dissociation <clears throat> in degenerative diseases, in Alzheimer's disease, which of course is a tragic impairment of the memory system, including memory for words. You have more, the patients have more trouble with irregulars, which by hypothesis depend on memory. In Parkinson's disease, which affects the basal ganglia and the frontal lobes, uh, and often leads in disfluency and mild agrammatism, you have more trouble with the regular verbs than with the irregular verbs. <clears throat> Finally, before concluding, let me rule out one possible confounding factor. Um, I mentioned earlier in the talk, but I didn't return to it, the statistical fact that regular verbs are in the majority in the English language. Several, many thousands of regular verbs, only 165 irregulars. And that perhaps leaves a loophole for the pattern associator theory. Perhaps the regular pattern is generalized most freely simply because it's the most frequent. As you grow up and you learn more and more words, the regular pattern gets stamped into your head by verb after verb after verb, and so it's most available as the basis for generalization. In order to tease these hypotheses apart, uh, what you need is a language in which a regular rule, in the sense of a default operation, that which you apply when memory comes up empty-handed, applies to a minority of forms. Now, at first, this seems like an oxymoron, because often in, uh, in language classes, teachers often use regular as a synonym for the most common form in the language. But there's nothing logically that calls for that. And in theory, if regular is simply that which you apply by default, in principle, it should be able to apply to a minority of forms. The question is, is there a language that actually has this property? Could there be a language that's so fiendish, so twisted, so sadistic, that it actually forces its speakers to memorize the vast majority of declensions and conjugations in the language? Could there indeed? Well, I'm going to quote to you from a famous essay by Mark Twain called <laughs> Die Schrecken der Deutschen Sprache, the horrors of the German language. A person who has not studied German can form no idea of what a perplexing language it is. One is washed about in it hither and thither in the most helpless way, and when at last he thinks he has captured a rule, which offers firm ground to take a rest on amid the general rage and turmoil of the ten parts of speech, he turns over the page and reads, let the pupil make careful note of the following exceptions. <laughs> he runs his eye down and finds that there are more exceptions to the rule than instances of it. Well, perfect, perfect test of the hypothesis. Uh, German indeed has three kinds of participles, two of which are uh, unpredictable, hence irregular, ones that change the vowel and add en, the uh, strong verbs. 
uh, ones that also unpredictably change the vowel and add T, the so-called mixed verbs. Finally, there's some that just leave the verb alone and simply add the T, and that's what corresponds to a regular operation. The uh, plural system is even more horrifying. Uh, eight plurals, four different suffixes, only one of which is really predictable. Uh, some plurals take no suffix at all. Just to keep learners on their toes, uh, some of these also have an unpredictable vowel change known as the umlaut. But nonetheless, uh, despite these differences, German inflection turns out to be the exception that proves the rule. Because whereas in English, 86% of the top 1,000 verbs are regular, in German, a minor minority, 45% of the top 1,000 are regular. But nonetheless, <clears throat> in terms of their logic and how speakers generalize the suffixes, the German speakers and English speakers act the same way. We use ED for rare verbs that don't have a strong stamp in memory, as in ablated. German speakers use T for rare verbs that don't have a strong stamp in memory, as in gelötet, soldered. We use it for weird-sounding verbs that can't be analogized to anything in memory, as in plumpft. German speakers use it for weird verbs that can't be analogized to anything in memory, as in geplauft, uh, which is, by the way, German for plumpf. <laughs> uh, in English, uh, we like to verb things, and when we, whenever we do, we use the regular, as in flyed out. Uh, Germans also verb things, uh, and they use the regular, as in gehaust, housed. Uh, finally, English-speaking children say singed, German-speaking children say gesinkt. This is even more dramatic when you compare the plurals, where the perfectly regular ending S is, applies to 99.6% of English nouns. The perfectly regular S applies only to 7% of German nouns. Nonetheless, we have plumps, they have plaufs. We have uh, Mr. and Mrs. Child, the Julia Childs. They refer to Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Mann as de Thomas Manns, not de Thomas Menner. Uh, we go out to see uh, Batmans. They go out to see Fausts, productions of the play Faust. Uh, we import elves. They export cadets. And English-speaking children say mans, whereas German-speaking children say mans, even though uh, a tiny subset of the nouns actually end in N, S in their experience. So that leads to the final uh, puzzle that I think this theory provides uh, an explanation to, which is how can you have two languages like English and German that are so similar in grammar but so different in their statistics? Again, I think the answer lies in a combination of history and psychology. If you go back to the ancestor of English and German, Proto-Germanic, spoken uh, more than two millennia ago, a majority of verbs are what we would today call irregular. But even then, there was the uh, dental suffix, the ed or the t, which applied to loan words, words that came in from other languages, and to derivations, new words derived from old verbs. In English, it just so happens that the major growth areas for the verbs were loans from French and Latin because of the Norman invasion in 1066, which flooded English with French words, and the Renaissance, which in turn flooded English with uh, Latin verbs. I've estimated that through dictionary sampling that about 60% of English verbs came into the language from French or Latin. 
Also, as Calvin pointed out to Hobbes, we like to verb uh, things. About 20% of our verbs started out life as nouns or adjectives. Now, crucially, that means that 80% of our verbs on grammatical grounds had to be regular because either they had these strange new sounds, these French sounds, which couldn't be analogized to the native vocabulary sound patterns, or they came in from verbs and had to be regularized because of their structure. So right off the bat, 80% of our new verbs had to go over to the regular side. So what it suggests is that the um, counter-explanation has got the causal arrow backwards. It's not the case that a majority of verbs have always been regular in English, and that has stamped the regular pattern into uh, the minds of English speakers as the most generalizable pattern. But it was exactly the opposite, that speakers of Germanic languages have used the regular as the default for thousands of years, and that's why the majority of verbs became regular, because the regular process got first dibs on all or most of the new arrivals into the language. So in sum, despite the identical function of regular and irregular forms, just two synonymous ways of referring to something that took place in the past or to more than one of something, we find that the irregular patterns are avoided and the regular suffix is applied in a variety of circumstances that have nothing in common except a failure of access to information in memory. They include rare words where the memory trace is uh, faint, such as abrogated and chided, difficult to analogize words that aren't similar to anything in memory as in plumped and frilled, words whose memory entries are inaccessible because of their structure as in low lifes and flied out, words that are poorly recalled by children because of their weak memory, such as braked and holded, and words that are poorly recalled by patients with disorders of word retrieval because of neurological damage to the memory system, such as anomia and Alzheimer's. It suggests that regular inflection must be computed by a mental operation that does not need access to the contents of memory, namely a combinatorial rule which can step in as the default. Uh, rules, therefore, free us from the constraints of memory and added that crucial extra uh, component of power to the human language system. And just to uh, bring it back to the themes with which I opened the lecture, uh, I believe that by looking at this tiny little case of these two different systems in operation, we've identified distinct mental mechanisms that implement the two principles of language responsible for its vast expressive power, namely memory for the arbitrary sign underlying the word and symbol combination for the infinite use of finite media underlying grammatical rules. Thank you very much. And I guess we'll have time for questions. Questions. Yeah, time for questions. I think we've got to follow the man with the microphone. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the great vowel shift, and I've long been puzzled by that. This, I, perhaps with the experts, and maybe not. Maybe they understand it now. But the, is there any explanation for it, and in particular whether it's more of a push or a pull, if you know what I mean by that question? Yes, whether the great vowel shift uh, involves a, a push or a pull? Yes. Uh, I, I don't... 
I don't have any particular expertise to answer that question, which, as I assume by, by your allusion to it, are the two schools of historical linguists that differ on uh, why it happened. So I'm going, I, will, I will leave that to the historical linguists. The question is, why did the great vowel shift occur? I think, I'm going to guess that the most uh, common theory is, is a, uh, a push, but I might be wrong in that. that because, basically, language is kind of like a game of dominoes, where one shift causes another. And, um, well, maybe actually this is a pull, but when my understanding is there, were, there was um, a certain amount of ambiguity when uh, words that ordinarily had been distinguished because of a shift of stress to the first syllable were now too similar. Speakers um, exaggerated or embroidered differences between some of the long vowels that by making two vowels maximally different from one another, one of them then intruded on the phonological space occupied by another, which pinged it off into um, another region of vowel space, which then pinged off uh, yet another one. And so you got, eventually, the whole system just rotating, uh, and probably the same number of distinctions as before. But uh, again, I'm not a historical linguist, so I better not commit myself. I think we had a question over here, the woman in red. Yes. Okay. Okay. I was going to ask, what about a word like hang, hung, yeah. hanged? And are there others like that? Yes, there are a few. Uh, what about hanged versus hung? Um, there, the distinction does not refer to whether one originally came from a, a, a noun or uh, from a verb root. Um, among fastidious speakers, there is a distinction between hanged, meaning suspended from the neck until dead, and hung, meaning merely suspended. Um, I think it's interesting, though, that that distinction is quite tenuous. Even many fastidious speakers will say that they hung the prisoner. You can see it in print all the time. And I suspect that it's precisely because it's only a meaning distinction, not a distinction in word structure, that it's very hard for speakers to hang on to it, if you'll pardon the expression. And I wouldn't be surprised if that became a historical curiosity. Here's another example where, uh, again, you have two different past tense forms, and it really does depend on pure meaning, not on grammatical structure. And again, it's one that never really fully infiltrated speakers and, and maybe on its way out. Some speakers distinguish between transitive and intransitive fit. Uh, he fitted me with dentures, the dentures fit. Okay? If you're a real smarty pants, you will correct students uh, when they use fitted in the intransitive or fit in the transitive. Nonetheless, the majority of speakers just run roughshod over that distinction. Third example, again, Two different, uh, slightly different, but um, also kind of observed in the breach. Uh, the difference between lie and lay. Probably the question I get most asked most often, what's the deal with lie and lay? Well, again, if you're, if you're kind of a, um, a fuss budget, then you will say that there is an intransitive verb uh, to lie, to recline, whose past tense is lay. There's a transitive verb to lay, cause to lie, whose past tense is laid. Uh, therefore, Bob Dylan was making a grammatical error when he said, uh, sang, lay, lady, lay, as did Eric Clapton when he uh, sang, uh, lay down Sally. Um, as did, by the way, Ernie of the Muppets when he said, it feels good to lay down, and the English teachers were up in arms and demanded a recall so that he'd be reprogrammed. 
again, that's a, um, that is a distinction which doesn't hinge on the noun-verb root, but it's also one that is psychologically quite fragile. I think there is, it's, it's not a random set of examples, and I think there is a, a weak correlation between uh, what linguists call aspect, namely how an event is distributed over time, and tense, which accounts for some of these quirks, but I think it's a second-order phenomenon and one that is, is very weak in the language. Yeah, Martin. Um, I, I, have a, I have a question regarding your rule for walkmans. Yeah. Is this actually a semantic rule because the head passes on the syntactic category noun, but what is blocked is the semantic information? So do you use your semantics to explain the syntax? Well, that would be... Um, if it were, if the nounhood were inherited, but the meaning, were, the referent were not, I mean, it's crucial not just the meaning in the sense of the whole set of features that describe the entity, but what's crucially, crucial is, is the referent of the head the same as the referent of the whole word? And my explanation for lowlifes and stilllifes and flatfoots and sabertooths, all of which do have a noun turning into a noun, hinged on the fact that the referent of the tooth is not the same as the referent of the sabertooth. So in the case of the Walkman, the, pro the thing is speakers go both ways. You can definitely hear Walkman as well as Walkmans. Um, I think it's because it's so, it's idiosyncratic. It doesn't assimilate to the pattern of low-life, flat-foot, saber-tooth, uh, which is a, a set of systematic exceptions. It almost follows its own minor pattern. Walkman comes out of the blue, and I don't think anyone really knows what the heck it means or what the man is doing in Walkman, and that's why I think you get this ambivalence. Oh, yeah, there's a person with a hand up and a yeah. microphone. Could you comment about words, the same word that has opposite meanings, or they're called Janus words, like uh, uh, cleave and sanction? Oh, yes, let. cleave, which could either mean uh, split or come together, and sanction, which means either uh, say, you, you can do it or you Flammable. cannot do it. Um, in, um, I can only give a generic uh, answer because I don't remember the specifics, but generally what happens is that two words start out, or one word starts out with one meaning, and they, pretty much all words are used in multiple senses. Um, the more common the word is, the more senses that it has. Often what will happen is a sense will split off another sense, which will split off another sense, until you can have two of the senses then coming together as opposites. Even though if you trace the history back, uh, there is a logic to why they ended up the same way. So in the case of sanction, um, well, I better, I better leave it to someone who actually has a dictionary in their lap who could trace the history. But ba the basic answer is that senses can go all over the place uh, every once in a while, two of them can end up with opposite meanings. Historically, they had the same one, or if you go back far enough. Yes? You tell us that all uh, irregular verbs were formerly regular verbs. So I shouldn't say all, but a lot. Okay. Most. So in that case, I would presume that in what we could call the first generation of what we might call languages, everything, all verbs were regular. Yeah. And so all we would need to process them was rules, and we would have no need for a sort of connectionist type of memory mechanism. So this would go fine until then there would be some generation where they would not be able to uh, gather the rule. The rule would no longer work, and then they would have, you know. Then at that point, you would have a need for memory to, to 
understand these verbs. So at that point, you'd have selection pressure for a connectionist-type memory mechanism. But that will take ages to evolve. So in the meantime, how, is, how are people processing the language? Yeah, uh, almost not quite. You always need the memory system just to memorize the words. And the, the basis of the theory is that irregulars happen when the system that you use to remember duck and walk and so on uh, takes on the function of grammar and you glom in the past tenseness into the simple memory entry for a word. So you learn brought the same way as you learn duck. But even if brought never existed, you'd still need the memory system to acquire duck. Um, so it's not as if you suddenly have the, and that the connectionist aspect, namely the fact that you associate patterns with patterns, is just by this theory a general property of human memory, uh, and probably of animal memory, I might add. So, um, so it's not as if you need the memory system just for irregulars, because in a, as you point out, in an evolutionary sense, the idea that we're, the brain is equipped with a system just for irregular forms uh, is quite implausible. Rather, the theory is that if you've got a memory system there to learn the words, all 60,000 of them, it's no sweat for it to learn a couple of hundred irregulars at the same time. And also to add some, some, a little bit of data to your, your speculation about uh, what a language would look like when it first emerged, there is some reason to believe that new languages, they don't occur very often, start out mostly regular, and it takes a while for the irregularities to accumulate, as you speculated. So Creole languages, which is probably the closest that we come to brand new languages, uh, tend to be highly regular. My favorite example, this is one that, uh, a phenomenon just documented in, the, in a, a, journal, a journal last month, Esperanto, the, perf the, the, the uh, 20th century equivalent to Wilkins' perfect analytical language. People who speak Esperanto are very proud of the fact that it's really logical and it has no irregularities. It's completely rule-governed. Now, some Esperanto fanatics actually use it in talking to their kids as a second language. Obviously, you don't have kids growing up speaking nothing but Esperanto. Interestingly, what happens is that when the kids use Esperanto fluently as opposed to learning it the way we learn algebra, sort of self-consciously to make a, you know, kind of a political point, um, it becomes much more irregular. And the kids introduce irregularities that, you know, much to the horror of their parents. Uh, but that's exactly, I think, what a linguist would expect. And the reason is, of course, within a single generation, there isn't enough time for a grammatical rule to die and leave around these fossils. But some of the irregulars come from economy of pronunciation. And I didn't mention that in the talk, but a bunch of them do. So, for example, have had. Originally, it was have halved, but for whatever reason, enough speakers slurred it, and it caught on, so that had became the past tense of have. Likewise, uh, made as the past tense of make. Originally, it was maked. That happens in kids acquiring Esperanto, and so you can see in real time transition between a perfectly regular language and one that's infected by a bit of irregularity as soon as it passes through a real human brain. Let's see. Two more questions. <clears throat> I'd just like you to settle a rather nerdy wager. Is it short-lived or short-lived? Uh, yeah, short-lived or short-lived. Um, it's another one. Of, it depends on, uh, it sort of depends on how anal you are. Um, if you go, if you, uh, if you're really fastidious, then, uh, and if you go by the dictionaries, then it would be short-lived. And it's, it's kind of a tenuous connection to the principles that I've mentioned, but the basic logic is that in pronunciation, as in grammar, often when you form a 
word out of another word, often you preserve the pronunciation, especially when there's a category change, you preserve the pronunciation. So short-lived means having a short life, and there's a, a bit of that logic that keeps the pronunciation of the noun life in the adjective uh, short-lived or short-lived. It doesn't completely fit the theory, but more or less. The, the argument that had been adduced to me for the pronunciation short-lived, which now seems to be nearly universal, uh, perhaps incorrect, but I, I, I'd been told that uh, short-lived, the justification for that pronunciation was that short-lived is a now archaic past active participle rather than an adjective based on the noun. That's, that, that's exactly what this theory would predict, that people would then reanalyze it. And instead, that the prediction is, for people who use short-lived, if you ask them what does it mean, they'd be more likely to say having a short life. For people who say short-lived, they should say uh, living for a short period of time. And this isn't just hand-waving. We've actually done this experiment, not with short-lived, but for... Um, a certain percentage of people say flew out in baseball, or at least rate it as not so bad. There is definitely a correlation between not preserving the, the uh, um, not converting to the regular, and analyzing it with a different structure that kind of short circuits the change of category and derives fly out as a metaphorical sense of flying. So your speculation is what's predicted by the theory, and there's some data for it. <laughs> yeah, I know, that drives me crazy. Um, uh, affect and effect. You, it's another case, the problem with that is that you've got um, a couple of, two verbs and two nouns, uh, aff affect, and uh, people generally like it when you could predict all of the cells of the matrix from the rows and the columns. And that is not the case for affect, effect, as it's not the case for lie and lay. Um, so the problem with affect and effect is you've got the noun uh, effect, uh, you've got the verb to effect, meaning to bring about, you've also got the verb to affect, which is similar in meaning to effect, meaning to cause something to come into being, and then coming out of left field, you've got the noun affect, meaning emotion. And it's because uh, the, uh, the uh, noun and verb of, and the two senses don't have uh, meanings that can be predicted completely from whether it's a noun or a verb. That is, the noun doesn't have a transparent meaning derived from the verb or vice versa that you have the confusion, uh, I think. Um, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe someone has made up a rhyme that uh, tells you when to use A and use E. I haven't been clever enough to do it. Well, let's thank Professor Pinker again for a most enjoyable lecture.